Well, this morning we're going to start, uh, it'll be the first in a series through the summer on the life of David. And so we want to look at some selected scripture passages that deal with David and his life and some of the th- ways that God used him. So we're going to start this morning looking at this passage where Samuel anoints David and look at some of the things that it means and what it means in our lives as we try to think about the truth that's contained here for us. Well, when I was a kid, there was this game that we used to play with uh, families would come over, and it was generally a game that we would play at night. You had to play it at night in the darkness. And it was kind of like reverse hide-and-go-seek. There was one person who was the spotter or the looker, and rather than go looking for people, they had to stand next to the house on the patio, and they would peer out into the darkness, and your job as the hiding people, you had to hide in a place where you could clearly see uh, the person who was looking. You had to be able to, you couldn't cover yourself entirely, but as long as you could see them, you were safe. And then the job of the person looking was to stand there and peer into the darkness and see if they could see you. And it was very dark in the backyard, and uh, you would hide under trees, and you would just only try to have your eyeball visible. As long as you could see them, you were safe. And the person there looking would call you out. I see you behind that tree with the white shirt. That's you. It was a fun game, but inevitably led to certain amounts of deceit. We called it, we called it Eagle Eye. That was the name of the game, Eagle Eye. The job was to be the person with the best eyes that could see the most, but every now and then you would have picked out everyone and there's still four kids out there hiding and you couldn't see them. They were hiding so well that there was nothing to be seen. And so eventually someone would, I see you behind the tree, and, and they actually can't see anything. They're hoping someone's behind the tree, right? And, and, and so then you're, you're behind the tree and you're wondering whether or not they're talking about you. Can they see me? Do they really know? How do they know it's me? And so maybe, maybe you ever so gently wiggle your elbow and see if they saw you. you know, yep, I saw you wiggling your elbow. If not, you just knew they couldn't see, right? Well, I want you to think this morning, as we look into the passage this morning, and you heard Jack read, that we have a God that looks not on outward appearance, but He sees the heart. You and I were created by a God from whom nothing can be hidden. He can not only see into the darkest places of night, He can pierce the depths of our souls, and there's nothing that can be hidden from His sight. And that truth ought to, at the same time, both strike fear into our hearts, but as you're going to see this morning, it's a very encouraging truth to know that God knows our hearts and has provided a way of salvation. I want us to think about these things as we dig into Scripture this morning. For sake of time, we have a lot to cover, and I want to jump right in to 1 Samuel chapter 16. And let me read some of these verses. We're going to walk all the way through the passage. I'm going to explain a few things in the passage. When we get to the end, we'll come back and kind of look at a few points of application and, and what are some take-home truths for us as a people that we need to know, especially in the fact in light of the fact that we have a God who knows every single detail about us. Let me read the first five verses. Then the Lord said to Samuel, How long will you grieve over Saul since I've rejected him from being king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and go. I will send you to Jesse the Bethlehemite, for I have provided for myself a king among his sons. And Samuel said, How can I go? If Saul hears it, he will kill me. 
And the Lord said, take a heifer with you and say, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord and invite Jesse to the sacrifice and I will show you what you shall do. And you shall anoint for me him whom I declare to you. Samuel did what the Lord commanded and came to Bethlehem. The elders of the city came to meet him trembling and said, do you come peaceably? And he said, peaceably. I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Consecrate yourselves and come with me to the sacrifice. And he consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. Now what's taking place as we open to 1 Samuel 16? You, you start by seeing this guy Samuel and Samuel is grieving. Samuel is, is feeling sorry for himself. He is discouraged. He's not only grieving, he's even fearful at the instructions that he has been given. You see, what is taking place as we open into the middle of the book is that Israel already has a king. That king's name is Saul. Remember, Israel is God's chosen people. As God made for himself a nation of the children of Abraham, and he took them out of Egypt and put them in the promised land, and he said, you're going to be my people, and he wanted them to live out this covenant relationship with him, and they went through a period where judges were their leaders, and judges would be raised up and help the people but the people would rebel against God and they went through these cycles and you're now at the end of that phase where there's no longer judges but neither is there a unified kingdom yet. Saul has been raised up as the first king. When the people wanted a king, God said, Saul will be that king. Now Samuel his role in all of this. He's the most important religious person in all of Israel. He would be the priest. He would be the leader and communicator of between God and the people. And so Samuel was there when Saul was anointed as king. Samuel was also there when Saul sinned. And Samuel had to call out Saul's sin. And Samuel had to deliver the news that Saul had been rejected by God as king. In fact, if you flip back to chapter 13. Two times Saul has heard from God that he's been rejected because of his sin. In chapter 13, look at verse 13, and Samuel said to Saul, you've done foolishly and you've not kept the command of the Lord your God, which he commanded you. For then the Lord would have established your kingdom of Israel forever. But now your kingdom shall not continue. And the Lord has sought out a man after his own heart. And the Lord has commanded him to be prince over his people because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. Then come to chapter 15. Look at the end of chapter 15 and verse 28. Again Saul sins. Again there's a condemnation of him. Verse 28, And Samuel said to him, The Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you this day and has given it to a neighbor of yours who is better than you. How would you like to know that your replacement is better than you? He is a man after God's own heart and God's already chosen him. How's that for like a lame duck presidency as Saul is now the king. He's at the height of his own political power, but God has said no more. And Samuel's very distraught at this news. Look at verse 38 of chapter, excuse me, verse 35 of chapter 15. And Samuel did not see Saul again until the day of his death, but Samuel grieved over Saul, and the Lord regretted that he had made Saul king over Israel. God's not saying that he made a bad choice. It's not regret in that sense, but even the sorrow that God himself realizes Saul has messed up this will be a bad situation and Samuel is grieving Samuel realizes no the, the plan has gone well the people are going to hurt 
There's going to be a lot of heartache now because of Saul's disobedience, because Saul has been rejected by God. And Samuel invested in Saul, and so he's grieving. And, and, and he's in his hometown grieving, and the word of the Lord comes to him and says, how long are you going to grieve? Remember, I still have a plan. Get up. I have a new king. Take your oil, take your horn, fill it with oil, and go to Bethlehem. Find the son of Jesse and anoint one that I've found for myself. The language there is that I've provided for myself a king. God has a king. It's the son of Jesse. And Samuel's job is to go and anoint him. Now, if Samuel shows up in the town that Saul is king of, eventually word is going to get back to Saul that Samuel showed up there to anoint a king. And Saul's going to say, wait a minute, I am the king. And Saul's going to know that there's now this judgment that he has heard is going to play out. And Samuel's fearful of the news. What am I going to do? Current kings don't like it when new kings are anointed in the territory that they reign over. And so God even has a plan for this and helps Samuel to understand. T take a heifer with you. Say to the people that you are going to prepare a sacrifice for the people. And so Saul shows up, excuse me, Samuel shows up to Bethlehem, this little town. It's about 10 miles away from the town where he was. And the elders of the city come out to meet him because when you see the most important religious person in town approaching your city, something's up. This isn't normal. This isn't natural. Not only is the most important religious person. He's the most important political civil magistrate. He, he, there's a lot of things that could happen when Samuel shows up, and many of them would not be good. And so the elders come out and they say, what's going on? Uh, or do you come peaceably? It, it's, it's not even like the fear that you see in your heart, like when you see a police officer with a speed trap and you didn't see them until it was too late and you have that sudden jolt of fear. It's worse than that. It would be like awakening early in the dawn to pounding on the door and the police chief is on your doorstep. What is going on? This can't, of all the scenarios, this can't be good. And so the elders come out to say, what's going on? Do you come peaceably? And Samuel's able to say, yeah, peaceably, peaceably. See, I, I'm going to have a sacrifice. There's going to be a worship service of sorts. There'd be a variety of reasons why they could have a sacrifice there. And so he has the cow there. Bring everybody together. There's a special invitation to bring Jesse and all of his sons. And they needed to prepare themselves for the sacrifice. And so Jesse comes and they gather around. And, and Samuel knows that the chosen one is among Jesse's sons. The text simply doesn't tell us whether or not the people understood the reason for Samuel anointing one of Jesse's children. I think there's reasons to think they probably didn't understand the significance of the event. There would be a variety of reasons why people might be anointed. They knew it was significant, but whether or not they understood that he was the king, this, the text simply doesn't say but Jesse brings his sons, he lines them up, and here's what happens. Verse 6, when they came, he looked on Eliab and thought, surely the Lord's anointed is before him. But the Lord said to Samuel, do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees, but looks. man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. So Eliab, probably the oldest, is the first one that Samuel sees. Surely that's got to be the Lord's anointed. He 
He simply looks like a king. And God says, don't look at his stature or his appearance. You see, a few chapters earlier in chapter 10, when Saul had been anointed as king, the text explicitly says that he stood a shoulder higher from the shoulders upward. He was taller than the average person in Israel. Samuel has already anointed a tall person as king. This person looks like a king. It's got to be Eliab, he says. And God says, no, no, no. I'm not concerned with the outward appearance. I can see things that man can't see. I'm concerned with the heart. And it's not Eliab. I haven't chosen this one. So the next one comes. Not him. The third one comes. Surely this has, I mean, if it's not the first or the second, it's got to be the third. All seven passed through. And imagine now this moment. Samuel has gathered everyone together and they're waiting. And Jesse was explicitly told to bring all his sons. And Samuel's checked seven off the list. And God is saying, no, these aren't the ones. At this moment, people are waiting to eat. They're waiting for the service to continue. They're wondering why seven went up and seven went down. And Samuel's, he's trying to figure this out. God told me to come to Bethlehem. I think I'm in Bethlehem. He said, the son of Jesse, you're Jesse, right? These all, and then he has to ask the question. He has to ask this awkward question in verse 11. Uh, he comes to Jesse and he says this. Then Samuel said to Jesse, are all your sons here? Is this, every, is this everybody? Did you, is this the seven? Is there anyone else? And Jesse says this, There remains yet the youngest, but behold, he's keeping the sheep. And Samuel said to Jesse, Send and get him, for we will not sit down until he comes here. So there was one more, but he was the youngest. In fact, he was kind of an afterthought. He's, he's so insignificant in the family that he's out keeping the sheep. And Samuel says, Go get him. We won't continue anything until he comes. So the awkward situation probably becomes more awkward. Have you ever had a service where there was a delay? How long would it take to go get message out to this boy who is keeping sheep and, and nothing's going to happen until he comes? So they finally get him. They bring him. Look at verse 12. And he sent and brought him in. And now he was ruddy and had beautiful eyes. The, the word for ruddy is dark or even red, very literally translated. He had beautiful eyes and was handsome. And the Lord said, Arise, anoint him, for this is he. So now David comes, the youngest, and when Samuel sees him, God says, this is he. This is the one. Anoint him. And Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers. And the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. And Samuel rose up and went to Ramah, back to the place where his hometown was. Now in the Old Testament, there was a variety of reasons why someone or something might be anointed. Specifically, there were, there were a number of instances as we look back through Exodus and other places. When, when someone or something was anointed, it signified that it was being set aside for a divinely consecrated task, for a divinely chosen task. And so the, uh, we have in Exodus examples where the altar was anointed, where the tent was anointed, where the high priest was anointed or even the king. And so here, David is being signified and set apart that he has been divinely chosen for this special task. And you see this beautiful picture that as, as he's anointed with the oil, signifying God's presence or God's spirit, the text explicitly says that the spirit rushed upon David from that day 
forward. God's spirit was with David. And in contrast, you should note that in verse 14, now the spirit of the Lord departed from Saul. And in the storyline of what's taking place in Old Testament Israelite king, Saul was chosen in chapter 10 and he rose to political power here at chapter 16. This is the peak. And David down here in his ark, as Saul begins to fall for the next several chapters, we're going to see David rise to power and you're going to see his own glorious ministry as king until he himself has significant falls and failures and turmoil in his life. But you see that God's presence was continually with David, different than Saul. Though David and Saul both made mistakes, There was something about David in the way that he responded, that God's presence was with him, such that that God was able to say about David, here's a man after my own heart. So we're going to unpack some of these stories as we go into the months ahead. But for you and I today, as we think about some of these verses, let's pick a few points of application that will just help us as we think about this text. Let, Let me start back at the beginning in chapter 16, verse 1. Let me, start it. Let me start by thinking this. This isn't central to the point of the text. Uh, it's not the main theme, I think, of what we're supposed to pick away with. But it is a helpful illustration and application when it comes to the area of grief and the area of fear. When we deal with some of these complex emotions, look, look what happens to Samuel. I love the, the truth that's illustrated here that you see in, in, at the end of chapter 15 and, and the beginning of verse 1, Samuel is in grief. He's experiencing intense grief such that the Lord has to come to him and say how long will you grieve get up trust God he still has a plan we often tend to think of emotions like grief and there'd be others we'd put into this category we think of them as very negative that if you're really spiritual if you're really faithful you won't experience these emotions and yet I don't think that's what the Bible teaches us about emotions and I love just the raw honesty as the scripture is recorded here that here's Samuel a man who did well for the Lord. He wasn't perfect by any means, but here he is in grief. And there's something good about his grief at this moment. The fact that Saul had been rejected as king, that was something to grieve. It it signified true loss that God's plans, that sin had corrupted and twisted things, and often we feel grief over the things that don't go the way we think they should, and and that can even point us Godward. We don't want our grief to get to the point that it, it, it makes us useless in God's service, but yet grief can point us to God in realizing this is not the way it's supposed to be. And, and grief is an adequate response. It's an appropriate response when we recognize that something has fallen short of God's good plans. Uh, about a month ago, my mom was reflecting on some of the things that the health events that have transpired in her life. And on the one-year anniversary of thinking of the things that have happened to her, she, she wrote a blog post and pointed us to a quote by John Piper who, who really captured this thought on grief very well. And John Piper said this, Occasionally, weep deeply over the life you hoped would be. Grieve the losses. Then wash your face, trust God, and embrace the life you have. That's a great quote in thinking about, yeah, Samuel's right to be grieving because Saul shouldn't have done what he did. And it was going to be painful. But it's not a reason to stop trusting God. 
and you need to get up, wash your face, and move onward. In this book, Untangling Emotions, Alistair Graves and Winston Smith, I just finished this book this week. It's probably in the top list of, of the top couple books I've read in the last couple years. It was very encouraging. It said this, Grief over any good thing points us Godward. Grief hurts deeply because we are so aware of just how good a gift God has given us in that close friend, the physical ability to go for a walk, the chance to live near family, or the souvenir your dad brought back from abroad and gave you when you were 10 years old. The anguish we feel when we lose things we love implicitly declares God's goodness in having given them. Our grief can then become the cry, Maranatha, come Lord Jesus and make this broken world whole. Being a Christian doesn't mean that you're never going to experience loss. And it certainly doesn't mean that you're never going to experience grief over that loss. And sometimes we experience that grief even in intense seasons. But it does mean that we constantly allow our grief to point us Godward, to remind us that we're in the middle of the already, not yet. And because God is good, anything that falls short of Him and His goodness is something that will bring a sense of grief. But there's a day coming when we know that he will return and all wrongs will be righted and there will be no more need for grief. And until then, we wait for that day. And don't think that just because you're experiencing grief, somehow you don't have enough faith in God. Realize that sometimes our grief is meant to increase our faith in God and push us towards God so that we realize he's still good. He still has a plan. Get up. Go to Rama. I've found the next king. And Samuel has to do that. And he does that. And he responds. And not only in grief, but even in fear. He's fearful. Wait a minute. When I go, they might kill me. Guess what? It's not that Samuel was a weak-minded Christian. It wasn't that he didn't have enough faith. He rightly understood his life was on the line. If you don't fear in that moment, you, uh, something's, there's a couple of wires that are crossed. But what did he do? His fear didn't stop him from going. His fear drove him to God. And he said, God, they might kill me. And God says, I have a plan. And so what did Samuel do? He responded and did exactly what he was supposed to do. He followed through on God's good plan. And so in a chapter dealing with fear, they said this, there's enormous value in turning toward rather than fleeing from the things we dread. This turning must not be an exercise in self-trust. But when we engage our fears with God, we can have enormous confidence that God will strengthen and grow us. There's great encouragement there to see. Here's Samuel. He got a message from God that he didn't like, just like the prophet Jonah got a message from God that he didn't like. Jonah was probably overwhelmed by a different set of emotions than grief and fear, and yet in his response, he ran from the Lord. Here's Samuel in a very emotionally tense situation. He runs to the Lord and says, God, what do I do? And God says, I have a plan. Trust me. And Samuel follows through and that ought to be an encouragement to us as a people. Well, the second thing that I think that we can note, stepping away from emotions, let's get to what is probably a little bit more at the heart of the passage. I want you to think about what exactly this means that God says man looks at the outward appearance, but God looks at the heart. You see, Samuel sees Eliab. He's the strongest. He's the biggest. He's the tallest. Surely that's got to be the king. And what is God's response? No, no, I, I see things that man doesn't see. Man looks at the outward appearance, and God looks at the heart. And then there's something very interesting that takes place. When you look at verse 12, did you notice the description? 
of David, and he sent and brought him. Now he was ruddy, and he had beautiful eyes, and he was handsome. David is still a good-looking dude, and maybe not as tall as Eliab was, certainly not as tall as Saul, and David's not an ugly kid. Um, David, the, the point here is not that ugly is good and beautiful is bad. The point is the heart is what matters, and that's what God is trying to communicate. The point is not that you and I place too much emphasis on the outward appearance, though there are other places of Scripture we could go that would probably prove that. The point here is that God sees something that you and I cannot see. God focuses on the invisible attitudes and characteristics and personalities of the heart. And God was not concerned with an outward kingly appearance. He was concerned with the heart. Now, when we think about the heart, what is it that we're talking about in Scripture? I love the way that a man named Paul Tripp kind of helps us define and understand some of these things that when the Bible talks about a person, it generally splits them into a couple broad categories, the inner man and the outer man. The outer man is our physical body, the flesh, things we can see with our eyes. That's the outward appearance. The inner man, Scripture uses all kinds of words, heart, soul, mind, emotions, will. There would be many others, and we could kind of combine them, compile them into this basket term of heart. And when you hear the word heart, the word you need to think, the definition you need to think for heart is the causal core of your personhood. That center of our emotions and will and being that causes us to do the things we do and say the things we say, to speak the words we speak, to go the places we go, to look at the things we look at. Our hearts are controlling us. And Jesus makes it clear in the New Testament that the fruit of our hearts comes out of our lips. It's our words and our actions and our behavior. And it stems out of our hearts. And Jesus is, uh, excuse me, here God is telling Samuel, I'm not concerned with the outward appearance. I'm concerned with your heart. So listen to this. God is not impressed with your physical appearance, though the world around you will be. God is not impressed with your bank account, though the world around you will be. God is not impressed with academic awards and athletic achievements, though the world around you will be. God cannot be fooled by those things. God cannot even be fooled by your religious worship. There are spiritual things that People try to do from an outward performance standpoint to impress others. And Jesus makes it clear in the book of Matthew when he confronts the Pharisees that, that your lips honor me, he says, but your hearts are far from me. So God is concerned with our hearts. Now, as we understand that, that ought to cause us concern because Jesus is, excuse me, God is telling Samuel, I can see what is impossible for you to see. You and I can't see people's hearts. It's clearly visible to God. There's nowhere we can hide. He knows exactly why we say what we say. He knows exactly why we do what we do. He can judge those intentions, and He purely knows our hearts. Now, for you and I, that ought to at once cause us to there ought to be something that strikes fear into us of, well, God knows everything about my heart. And yet, here's a guy, David, who's going to fail in some fantastically glorious ways. And yet, it said he's a man after God's own heart. 
It's, the point is not that David was perfect. There's something that David understood in his relationship with God where God extended grace, where David responded in repentance, where David ran to the Lord after his failures. You see, you and I, if we were honest, when we look in our hearts and we see if God is perfect and holy, we don't measure up. We don't love our neighbor as ourself. We, don't, we aren't kind to others as we ought to be. We don't want God to be in charge of our lives. We run from Him and our hearts are desperately wicked, Scripture says. And so if we know that God looks at the heart, there ought to be something in us that says we need new hearts. We need transformed hearts. Why could God look at David, someone who sinned, and say, He's a man after my own heart. Whatever it was that David knew and experienced and had, you and I need that today. We need transformed hearts. Hang on to that. Hang on to that thought of needing transformed thoughts. We're going to come back to it in a couple minutes. Let me come to the third point of application. Come to the word youngest in verse 10. Then Samuel said to Jesse, Are all of your sons here? And he said, There remains yet the youngest... But behold, he is keeping the sheep. That word youngest can also mean smallest. Uh, it ha carries the sense of the idea of being insignificant. How would you like that to be your description? Any youngest brothers and sisters here this morning? I'm sorry on behalf of all older brothers and sisters that have plagued you for a life. Yes. The one who's overlooked, the one who's insignificant, the one who's smallest, the one who's youngest. And yet, here's the truth. Here's the truth of application that we need to hang on to. God's plans can always be trusted even when they don't look like our plans. God's plans can always be trusted even when they don't look like our plans. Surely, Eliab, the tallest, surely he's the king, right? And yet, here's David, the little shepherd boy. He's so insignificant. He's the smallest that he's out with the sheep. That's the equivalent of like the, the kid bagging groceries at the supermarket. At, at this age, we don't know for sure how old David was. A lot of people say between 10, 12, 13, perhaps as old as 15 or 16. He's just this insignificant kid that's easy to be forgotten about, and yet he's the one that God has chosen. Now that makes no sense to you and I. I mean, if, 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 and think about the storyline of David's life. He's this young. Remember, you've got between 20 and 30 years, 25 to 30 years before he's actually anointed as king at the beginning of 2 Samuel. Here he's just anointed. He's not anointed as king till we get to 2 Samuel. For 25 to 30 years, he's waiting. Does that make sense? You've got an evil king in power. Why wouldn't, like, out with the bad, in with the new? Do you know how much suffering David's going to go through in preparation for the next two decades, three decades, as he, he immediately then, remember how I said we're not sure how significant this was in a couple verses he's back out with the sheep he's, he's back out as the little shepherd boy in chapter 17 he's in the service of the king and what looks like a fantastic relationship between Saul and David falls apart and David has to run for his life that makes no sense and yet in God's plan in God's program God specializes in taking things that don't make sense and working them, crafting them, weaving them into a perfect plan to bring himself honor and glory. And, and so there was 
One commentator that put it this way, when David, the youngest of Jesse's, the youngest of the sons in Jesse's family was selected as the Lord's anointed, he joined a venerable crowd of patriarchs selected by God in a way that confounded social norms. Other men who were not firstborn but who were selected by the Lord over their more socially powerful older brothers included Seth, Noah, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, Ephraim, Moses. It seems like the biblical record deliberately creates the impression that Yahweh prefers to use disenfranchised members of society to do his most significant work. And this was God's plan. This was God's purpose. This is what God was accomplishing through the life of David. At the very beginning of the book in 1 Samuel, there's a, there's a girl named Hannah. That's Samuel's mom. She doesn't have a child. And yet, Samuel, Hannah was married to a man who had two wives and the other wife had many children and she loved to dig this in and she was an adversary. There was a competition there because this other woman had children and when God finally gives Hannah a child, it's Samuel and she writes this beautiful poem, this song that she sings in chapter 2 and many of the themes of the song are God has taken the mighty and lowered them. God has taken the weak and he has elevated them. And she even has this line in there, stop singing so proudly. Stop speaking so proudly. That word for proudly is the word for height. You could say stop singing so highly. And this song in chapter 2 spells out some of the themes of God humbling the mighty and raising up the weak and you'll see here how there was, a, there was a king who was high. He was shoulders above the rest, and he was made low. And there was this little insignificant shepherd boy, and he was going to be the greatest king in all of Israel's human history. And yet he himself was going to have drastic failures. He himself was going to fail in very significant ways. And yet what's the point? You see, David is not the point of this story. God is the point of this story and what God is doing to weave the story together. We don't even learn David's name until verse 13. God says, rise, anoint, this is he, this is him. Until that point, he's the most insignificant, he's the youngest, and yet David's not the point. God is, David is meant to point us to another king who will come from the town of Bethlehem in a way that would shock everyone. This, this, if you and I were writing the story, we wouldn't have written it this way. But there would be another king born from the line of David to Mary and Joseph, and his name is Jesus. And he was born in Bethlehem. And he's not the one that others would have picked to be king. You have this quote in Scripture from Tim Chester, and it says this, This shepherd boy will become Israel's greatest Old Testament king. It is completely unexpected. He is a small boy from a small place. And in the same way, it is reasonable to conclude that nothing good can come from Nazareth. That's what they said in John. Or that a carpenter cannot be Messiah. That's what's recorded in Mark. But once again, God does not see the world as people see it. Once again, an unlikely king would come from insignificant Bethlehem. If we can go forward in the slides, I want to go to Isaiah chapter 53. So I'm going to skip Romans and go to Isaiah chapter 53. And I want you to see this. Unlike David, who was a good-looking kid, when Jesus shows up on the scene, this is what we see. For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root 
root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. In verse 3, he was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. People did not recognize Jesus as the king that they were expecting and waiting for. Jesus was the prophesied one who would come and return David's kingdom to a greater glory than was even expected. And yet when Jesus came, he he showed up to say, I'm not just here to be the political king. I'm here to provide payment for your sins. You see, if you and I need new hearts and transformed hearts, we need to be made right in our relationship with God. Our sin separates us from God and only a new transformed heart can provide and Jesus came to be that sacrifice he came to this earth and died on the cross to take a punishment that you and I deserve only he could pay that sacrifice to bring us into right relationship with God and that's a plan that didn't make sense a king that's crucified a salvation that's dead Some would call that foolish. In fact, in 1 Corinthians, this is how Paul says, For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. Coming down to verse 27, But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise, and God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. But God chose what is low, and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are. And it would have made no sense to us seeing Eliab and the seven sons lined up that there would be a little insignificant shepherd boy out tending the sheep and that would be God's chosen one. And in the same way, you and I have sin that separates us from God. And you know what God's plan is to deal with that? It's his son Jesus. He loved us so much that he... You see, God doesn't look at the outward appearance. He's not impressed by what he sees. He looks into our hearts, and when God peers into our hearts, there's sin that has to be dealt with. And God's beautiful plan to rescue that, as much as that might strike fear into your hearts, you need to know that God loves you. He loves you so much that he made a way for his son to come and be a payment that covered for your sins. It was a sacrifice that you couldn't pay and that when you turn from your sins and place your faith and trust in what Jesus Christ did on the cross, well, then you can have right relationship with God. Then we can truly know and experience him and that's God's plan. And David points us forward to Jesus. He's the hero in the story. Jesus is. And over the next months, as we look at this passage, as we look at this story, let let it remind us of who Jesus is and all that God did to prepare a way of salvation for you and I. Let's pray. Father, we're thankful for who you are as God. We're thankful for the truth that you've given to us through the person of Jesus Christ. Lord, I know that in a crowd this size, there are some that if they were honest in their hearts, there's sin that separates them from you. They need new hearts, transformed hearts. May they know and see and understand that Jesus is that sacrifice. Jesus is the one who can provide a transformed heart. May they see it and turn to you, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.